Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Charlie Yuki. Charlie is the co-founder and CEO of Sezzle, a $1.2 billion market cap alternative payment platform, enabling consumers to buy now and pay later. Charlie, welcome to World of DAS. Thanks for having me. All right. Now this kind of like buy now, pay later, people call BNPL because they need more acronyms and stuff like that has really exploded, definitely at least in the last five years. What do you think like has led to like the overall acceleration of this space? I think generally we're finding a new niche in payments. Before buy now, pay later, you had traditional debit, you had traditional credit. And what we're doing is driving a wedge in that pie. I call it the creditization of debit. Because what's happening is customers that use our product, they love to pay with debit cards typically yep. because they like the certainty of the product. They are actually a little bit afraid of using traditional credit cards or they're new to credit cards, like newer on the financial spectrum. And what they like about our product is it gives them purchasing power, but it does it in a way that feels very safe because the payments are planned. So you can see that's like this circular pie of payments and we're just driving this wedge into the payments pie. And what we're finding is that it's going to be here to stay because customers like to pay with installments. And buy now, pay later is just a subset of installments where it's you know very short term, free for the customer. You know those benefits are always attractive. And why is this happening much more today? Like why is it accelerating today much more so than it was happening twenty years ago? You know, twenty years ago there was a prior version of this layaway. Yep. In some ways, was a prior version, but layaway I think had flaws in the model in that it really mess with the supply chains of companies because they'd have to put products along the side and they just couldn't handle the product or that flow very well. And so what this product has really come back and done is it's taken layaway and improved it. And I even talked to my mom about it. She's like, oh, it sounds just like layaway. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting to hear. And she's like, we used to use that for you as kids. And so I really like what you're doing. You know, someone like my mom, who's non-techie, when she hears the product, she's like, just thinks of layaway. And it was a popular product back then, but because of the flaws didn't make it. And I think this model has solved the flaws because the customer gets the product up front. So now the merchant doesn't have to worry about supply chain issues. So that's a big benefit to it. And then the merchant also doesn't have to worry about you know, the payment plan and the handling of collecting on the plans. So we help with that too. So basically we've optimized the process for the retailers in a way that makes it sustainable. So I think that's why you're seeing it. This was a popular way to pay, reinvented, yep. re-energized, and now it's taking off. Now, from like a merchant's perspective, obviously someone could like just pay with their card for something and then the merchant gets charged their two and a half or whatever percent that goes in there. The merchant could potentially offer financing or something directly. There's with a buy now, pay later, how much do you think it makes sense for like the merchant to subsidize the costs of it? Because it's obviously going to get somebody maybe to pay more or maybe even to get someone to become a customer where they weren't going to be a customer before, or how much do you think that's not as important? So we typically charge, just to give you a sense, we charge 6% plus 30 cents is our typical fee for SMB. Yeah. Of course, there's, there's, you know, we'll give discounting for larger volumes. I think the way to think about this as a merchant is a couple of different ways. The first is, are your margins large enough to support the additional fees? So if you look at where our sweet spots exist, like fashion, apparel, beauty, cosmetics, higher margin products. Yep. So for those merchants, it's really an easy decision. I'm making 40, 50, 60% margins. 
if I can drive more to the bottom line, that's a big win. And if it costs me a couple more percentage points to do that, I don't care because yep. I'm driving more to the bottom line. It's worth it. So I think for a lot of those companies, it's an easy decision. But there's another view at buy now, pay later that I think is really interesting. A lot of people don't necessarily pick up right away. The initial value prop is this conversion increase in sales that I was talking about where you weigh the cost benefit. But there's an affiliate aspect that grows over time. And what happens is as our user base at Sezzle grows, we have our own store directory where we advertise our partner merchants and we will drive new users to our merchant partners. Oh, interesting. And that's free. That comes along with the pricing. Okay, got it. They could get an incremental X number of customers by working with you. Obviously, the more merchants I work with you, the more that increment could potentially go up. Every time you drive somebody, you get that 6% or something. So you have an incentive to drive more people to places that make sense for those consumers. You've nailed it. And what's really interesting about that, if you're a merchant and you look at that product, what we're doing for them, now they start to compare us to Amazon and Google as the channel. They think of us as a channel. Yeah. And in Google, it's costing them 15% in terms of the advertising spend to acquire a customer and make that sale. Same thing with, with Amazon. And so now they look at our channel and they say, wow, this is really cheap. I'm only paying 6%. Yep. And there's a certainty that they only have to pay when that transaction is completed. Yep. Okay. Interesting. Exactly. That's really cool. One of the things that's probably different between now and then 20 years ago is obviously we have like a very historic low interest rates. Is the low interest rates like an extreme help to get all these BNPL services up and running? Because maybe your cost of capital is lower, et cetera, or is it a, a hindrance or how do you think the interest rates play into like the business models of all these different companies? They help us for sure. Low interest rates help in this environment but we're actually quite resistant to rises. I'll give you an example of why. So our payment plan is six weeks. We take 25% at time of purchase, and then we take the remaining payments at two weeks, four weeks, and six weeks. So if you take the weighted average, like on a teeter-totter, that's the duration of our loan. Oh, interesting. It's only six weeks? Yeah, it's only three weeks. The weighted average of when the payments come in. Right, right. So it's really only a three-week blended loan. Oh, I didn't realize it was that fast. Okay. Interesting. And even those six weeks is so important for a consumer because obviously it's better than a payday loan or something like that or whatever. Yeah. Okay. And so we turn over a lot. We turn over 17 times per year. So if you raise interest rates by 17%, our cost only goes up by 1%. Interesting. Okay. So we're very resistant to rising interest rates. Actually, our first one of our first line of credits was like 14, 15% when we were just getting started but easy to sustain because we had the churn in our product. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Now there's a ton of companies that are out there all doing different things, all attacking the market in different ways. Besides Cecil, like there's a firm, there's Kesky, there's Afterpay, there's Klarna, there's a lot of different ones. They're all good in their own different ways. So they're good in their niche markets and something like that. Like, how do you see this space evolving over the next 10 years? Well, I think what happens is there's some convergence over time. So I think everyone would like to get more full feature sets. Yeah. So for example, a firm started with long-term. They're adding more short-term through yeah. buy now, pay later like us. We started with buy now, pay later. We're adding long-term Yeah. just like a firm. And so I think there's a little bit of convergence in terms of expanding feature sets. But I think where we're all going as companies is we're heading towards the same end game, which is our customer joins our product, learns about us, really appreciates our product, and they trust us because they love the product. They love how we service them. And we start to add more features and we start to look more and more like a bank, but a new age bank, a quote unquote neo bank. And I think that's as we evolve, 
we add feature set and the customer starts to see Sezzle as their financial institution. Like I'm going to just stick with Sezzle because I like their checking product. I like my Revolve product, you know, whatever might come from us in the future as we roll out new products. And I think that's how we're thinking about it. And I, I believe that's how our competitors are also thinking about it because I can see the chatter when they're talking about their business and where they're headed. So I think we're all really headed to that same place. I think the traditional financial institutions and the market caps that exist within, that's what we're attacking into. But you're attacking these traditional guys just like a chime or you know some of these other new types of banks or something like that. In some ways, you're all just trying to take this pie from the old school banks that exist. Yep. We're going about it in different ways. Like the chimes of the world already had the neo banking, like checking account product. Yep. And they pay to acquire. What's interesting about our model is that we're working with our partners, our merchants, and they're helping us acquire. And then we have to convert. That's what I'm saying. There's convergence, not just in the buy now, pay later itself, but I think that the chimes of the world, et cetera, those companies are also thinking about buy now, pay later because they see this attractive acquisition channel. Some of these companies, both like the Chimes of the World and the Sessels of the World, I mean, they're already very large market cap companies. Do you see on the horizon, like these kind of mega merger that could happen between these different types of attackers? Or do you think it's unlikely because all these attackers are growing so fast that they're probably not going to merge with one another? I think it's likely. Okay. What's interesting about all these silos in the fintech world is a lot of them are difficult to develop from scratch. It's hard to add some of these services. Yeah. You know, an example would be like a credit card program. That takes a lot of experience to add. It takes a lot of work to build up our merchant networks. Oh yeah. So just to start into one of these silos is very difficult. And what I, what I tend to think about is when you find that's difficult to get off the ground with something from scratch, that's the great M&A play. Where is there, like, does it make sense for those to combine? And that's why I think you will see M&A to assist with convergence in this sector over time or these sectors. In financial services, there's really no dominant player, at least in the US, no one has more than a small percentage market share and there's quite fragmented, obviously, because the industry is so, so big. Do you think they'll always be that way? Or do you think you could see a scenario where there's like a clear market leader where they can get to 30 plus percent market share in the US? I think it'll always be fragmented. There's gonna have to be some sort of invention that really changes that ballgame. From what I can tell today, you're still going to see some fragmentation. What do you think of these other more technology players, like when Apple has a payment system and Google has a payment system? How do you think like they ultimately play within these like financial services ecosystem? I think they have a chance. I've got a Google account. I've got a Facebook account, yep. et cetera, et cetera. There's a chance if executed well, that they could potentially convert customers into these banking products. Google had a plan to launch with City with Cityplex or Googleplex, I think was the name potentially, but they backed away from it. I think the only potential risk from their side or concern is regulatory, the regulatory environment. And I think everyone's kind of walking on eggshells a bit yep. with what's going on recently. I think there might be some regulatory resistance for them heading this direction. I do think they have the capabilities and the user connections to make it happen. They just haven't done it yet. In your model, like I imagine data is like a really big piece of it because to the best of my knowledge, if a customer doesn't pay you, you don't, it's not like you're signing them to collection or anything like that. You just kind of like write it off. Yep. So you want to make a very high likelihood of if you're fronting the money to a merchant that this customer is going to pay you back. How do you think about the data inputs that go into some of these decisions? You know, it's really interesting. I think one of the most important things about bringing a customer on board is making sure that they're real. 
So the data that we use, I think, is typically geared towards fraud. That's the most important data in my mind. Right. As long as they're a real person, people are generally want to pay their bills and they're generally likely to pay back. Yeah. What's really interesting about this, RN is this dynamic. We've seen this product launch in markets where they gave every user the same limit at the start. So they would make sure it's a real user and that we were not doing this out of the gate. Yeah. They would make sure that this was a real user. They would give the user $300, let's say, in a limit. They didn't even show it to the user. And then over time, the user's utilization of the product would essentially develop their score. If they kept current, they'd get more access. And in a way, it was these companies were developing their own scoring systems. We saw that we were in the US launching the product. We decided to pull in as much data as we could to optimize initial limits. But we also tested the concept of giving people the same limit in the US and in Canada. And we saw that the product was successful. Of course, you have to kind of weigh the CAC of the customer, like the extra cost of not analyzing it. Is it worth it or not? And we determined that it's worth it to analyze and change limits based on you know, different viewpoints of the customer, past fraud. But you can launch this product giving everyone the same limit. It's proven to work in countries, which is really interesting. But the most important thing is that they're not a, it's not a bot. It's actually a real person. It's not a fraudster. How much of that is, obviously, there's some products that a fraudster is going to be more likely to want to buy because it's high resale and you know other types of things and other products where it'd be very hard to resell a United Airlines ticket or something like that or some other type of thing. So is part of the product also what they're buying, like go into the model? Absolutely. Yeah, you'll find in electronics, for instance, higher resale capability. So there's higher chance of fraud, gift cards. Yep. Okay. Give cards for sure. Of fraud. Yeah. You know, actually in travel, we've actually had some struggles, which is not every one of our sales is a, like a United Airlines ticket, but in travel, we've had more fraud. Oh, interesting. Okay. So there are certain categories that have more fraud and fashion and apparel is not one. Beauty cosmetics, not one. Okay. Because it's hard to resell some of these things or yeah, it would be hard to resell a bunch of stuff by vitamin supplements or something like that. Okay. Exactly. When you buy supplements, it's, you're buying it to consume it. And those people are, you know, if you're driven enough to work out with supplements, you're you're typically driven enough to pay us back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what you kind of find. What other signals are you trying to figure out where this is like not a bot? Are you looking at the age of the email address that's out there? Or are there some like new types of ways of just trying to figure out like this is a real person? Yeah, it's multivariable. Absolutely. So you mentioned one, age of email. That's a pretty key indicator. If someone just created an email address and try to sign up with you, that's a pretty high probability of fraud. Another one is VoIP. If they're using a VoIP phone, VoIP is not allowed in our system when you first join us. You can add it later, but you have to join us with a mobile phone. You know, it's got to be a subscription that you've got with a mobile provider. Got it. So you'll take the number and you'll, and you'll, and, and then of course, if you've seen that, and once the more customers you have, the more you see these phone numbers as well. Okay. Interesting. Exactly. A couple of the key characteristics are email and phone. And we ask the customer to verify the ownership of those. And then we ask for address. You know, basically a lot of the data comes over from the merchant to us. We can also see if you're changing things. Yeah. Based on what was brought to us, are you adjusting? You know, those are some signals of fraud. There's some fraud rings that run out of certain addresses, like a warehouse, then you can start to identify, oh, this area is troublesome because it's a warehouse or whatever it might be. There's a lot of these data points. You pull all of these in and, and we create a score. And if the customer passes that score, that threshold, because we got ML models running all of it behind the scenes, our ML model is telling us this is a real person. Yep. Is there, is there any type of like data co-op for this fraud? Because I can imagine like 
every kind of core merchant, every other buy now, pay later is going to have a similar type of thing where you'll catch somebody that you're pretty confident this was a fraudster or you know they didn't pay you back. You're like, oh, that's probably a fraud or, or whatever it might be. Is there any way of like sharing this to a central place and then you could all benefit? You've nailed the topic that we're thinking about right now. So there's early warning for the banks where they actually have this shared fraud system. And we're thinking and talking about the concept or creating that same concept in buy now, pay later. How can we do this properly, you know, within the, the rules and regs yep. so that we can stop the criminals? And I think everyone's on board with stopping the criminals. And if we can do that, we all do better and we can provide a less expensive service to our merchants and our consumers. And so that is something we're definitely thinking about because if we can block the fraud rings by working together, it's win-win. We're not there yet though. That's really interesting. If you think of like Verisk, when Verisk launched 30 years ago in the insurance industry, the big problem there was somebody submitting multiple claims to multiple insurance firms. And so you might get like five different insurance firms would all get a very similar claim. When they started pooling it, it became a data co-op. When they started pooling it, you'd start to see these very similar claims all come in into one entity, and then they could flag it very, very quickly. And fraud went down very, very fast after that got implemented. Yeah. So it's great to hear that. I mean, that's a, that's a model I think that we should follow. And I had not heard of that model in the insurance industry, but yeah, sounds exactly like what we're thinking about here. I had thought coming in that really what you were trying to do is essentially assess credit. But what you're saying is actually that is a very, very secondary thing. What your most important thing is just assess that this is a real person. Exactly. And what's really interesting about buy now, pay later is the system solves for itself on the credit side. So we do use credit data. We do try to optimize the initial limits and then ongoing limits, how we we might pull in more data over time and massage the limit assigned. But what we tend to find is this, because we have so many data points occurring with this customer. So every two weeks we have a data point on repayment. And then you layer in a second order and now they're intersecting or overlapping. And now you have a data point coming in every week. And those repayment data points are really the key drivers for creating the credit limit for the customer. And so what's really interesting about this product over time is I think because we have so many thin file, no file, young customers coming in, we have a chance to become an incredibly powerful financial institution over time as we layer in more products Yep, because we're getting proprietary data that traditional financial institutions do not have. And you're not like sharing it back with an Experian or an Equifax or something like that. Yeah, not in all cases. And if we do share it, we're sharing limit. We do have a credit reporting product, Sezzle Up, but we only share the limit and utilization and whether or not they're current. You don't see all the hiccups along the way and all the payments necessarily for that customer because we can actually see if there's a little bit of strain or stress, if they're missing a couple of payments rescheduling, and that doesn't go into the credit reporting systems. I have this hunch that when people miss payments or they're late on their payments or they don't pay some things back, they're when they're real people, they're kind of like picking the companies that maybe don't treat them that well. And they're not paying those companies back, or they're charging them own, you know, onerous interest rates, or you know, have all these fees. And I know one of the things that you've done at Tesla is really say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna be extremely fair. We're not gonna get, charge you all these late fees and all these other things. Do you think just the fact that you're just like a little bit more consumer friendly means you're gonna be paid back first? Absolutely. And I think the fact that it's a small ticket. Yep. Our average order is a hundred dollars. Oh, so oh, the really average, okay. Yeah, the average payment is $25 on our system. Hmm. And so it's really easy for a customer to choose. Let me pay that back to stay current with Sezzle because they treat me well. I get, you know, it's, it's a free product for me to use their service. So you definitely nailed it. And you also nailed another concept because what we find is that repayment to us can be driven by the performance of the merchant we're partnered with. 
So if the merchant does a poor job in delivering product, ah, uh, got it. So if they they're late to ship it or the product it wasn't as good or okay, that would make that makes perfect sense. So you Absolutely. you do need to partner with good merchants that are going to do a good job. Exactly, and so we do track that on a merchant. Every complaint that comes into our system or every repayment miss that is tracked back to merchants. We'll have merchant scoring occurring as well, and if a merchant starts to score too high, we're going to give them a call. We're seeing some service issues at your operation. We might have to turn you off. Okay, and so even before you sign on a merchant, you could start doing research online. Does this merchant have high customer satisfaction? Exactly. That are actually have their act together, have good operations, that have a standardized product, that you know have good customer success, good customer support, etc. Spot on. And you know it reflects on us as a business. There's this element of trust that we give to the consumer about the merchant. I know PayPal has this same sort of element. When PayPal is present, the customer trusts the merchant in some ways because they see that PayPal has vetted them, et cetera. So I think Sezzel gives that same sort of trust or confidence level to the consumer. And so we want to maintain that confidence level with our consumers, which also makes us keep the standard at a high level with our merchant partners. If they're not performing, we've got to either offboard them or charge a high enough rate to make it worthwhile for us to have them on the platform because it is a reflection on our brand as well. And why a lot of people you have are fairly thin files. Is it the fact that, okay, well, you're only giving them a hundred dollars. So your losses are pretty limited. Does it even matter? You have like a massive credit history on this person, or is it like, okay, we're going to take a risk on this person and give them a hundred dollars, see how they do. And then, you know, and it's really, if you're taking 6%, it's $94 for you. Right. And then you're slowly kind of ratchet them up over time. Or do you really feel like you need a lot of a massive amount of data right up front on somebody before you can even give them this uh, quote unquote loan? It's not a massive amount of data. We do pull in some data. So, you know, if a customer comes in and we can't find anything about them, traditionally called no file, yeah, we still give them a limit. 15% of our customers, one five, have no history that we can find. And we will give them a limit, actually typically more like around $200 when a customer comes in. The reason we get $200 is because that covers a couple of purchases on average. So they can make that first purchase, good chance they can make the first purchase and we can start to see some history. And if they can make that first purchase and pay it back, we start getting more access. But we will pull in data. It's not like a FICO score. We used to pull FICO, but we found that FICO is not the best indicator in our consumer group. So we use more alternative type credit data. You know, are you current on utility bills, et cetera, that type of data. And are you pulling that in from like a plaid or how are you pulling in some of those or some of these other types of data? So there are bureaus or minor bureaus that have this type of data that we pull in from, and they would be considered alternative bureau data. It's generally a little bit less expensive for us. And I think it's, well, not think, I know it's more informative because our teams on that side have told us that. And so if you have like, a, if you if they think of like a new customer, Orrin Hoffman, I'm a new customer, I show up, I'm buying a cool sweater or something like that at one of your cool retailers or something. Are you doing some sort of like round robin API where you start at this bureau and if they don't have anything, you go to this other bureau and just go all the way through or how does it kind of work and how has that changed over time? So we basically generally use the same bureaus for every customer and we'd hit the bureau, we'd hit our email score, phone score, email and phone score are used for fraud, but we also pull them in for credit as well that goes into the same model or the next model. But I imagine like a lot, not every bureau is going to have me. 
for instance, right? Or something. And so do you start with, I don't know, the least expensive one or, you know, one of them is going to cost you a dollar, one of them is going to cost you a dollar twenty-five, and one is going to cost you a dollar fifty or something to dip? Or is there some sort of like waterfall or something that you think of? Or no, is it like we, I'm just going to hit everybody and yeah, we don't do the waterfall yet. And I think as we get larger, more scale, then you start to get more juice out of that yeah. squeeze, you know, by adding waterfall. We're just not at that level at this point because we typically find that with our current system, it works quite well in terms of getting that customer the limit that they need. I would say there's a high certainty that you're going to get the limit you need yeah. in our systems. And I can tell you that because our, our average approval rate is around 90%. Oh, wow. Okay. Nine zero. Yeah. Amazing. It's a very high approval percentage. And I assume a lot of the other people are fraudsters, are just bots or, or other types yeah. of things. that are Either identified as fraud or not current with us. So if you failed on a payment, and you come back, we're not going to approve that transaction until you catch up. Yep. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So the very first transaction, let's say it's a hundred dollar transaction. You're basically making six bucks on that transaction, but there's decent, the first transaction, you're going to have a pretty high cost because you have to run your algorithms. You have to dip a bunch of different places, et cetera. So you've got a CAC there, even though you're not like a, even though you're kind of getting the customer for free from the merchant, you've got some sort of cost there. And then, so your hope essentially is that I'm going to buy multiple times. You don't have to spend any more money on me the next few times I buy. You nailed it. You okay, nailed it. Interesting. It's really important to have good repeat. And so it's all about making our app, our mobile experience phenomenal really personalizing it to you. So when you shop, let's say you come and shop at Sezzle or with Bass Pro Shops with us. So you, we see you shop at Bass Pro Shops. Now, when you come into the app, we need to show you more merchants like Bass Pro Shops or email you about more merchants. How do you like get people to like come to, the, obviously if you're getting someone to shop with you, that's amazing. Yeah. You built this relationship with me. I bought the sweater. You acquired me from this merchant. Uh, how does that work? Because I, I kind of see you as like my lender way. You're you're helping. Like I don't I don't think of PayPal as PayPal is gonna, you know, I'm gonna go shop with them. I or I don't Visa. I'm gonna shop with them. I see them as facilitating my payment to a merchant that I love. How do you switch that mindset with a consumer? It's really interesting that you bring that up. You're spot on. You know, when you look at the PayPal's of the past or PayPal, you know, a past player and current, but they don't have this marketplace concept. When we launched, we started with the marketplace. So as we added merchants, we added them to our store directory. So there's no store directory concept at PayPal. Yep. It, with us, we did it from the start. And so I think what happened is, if you think about shopping online nowadays, there are a ton of merchants, right? Yep. You don't know any of them because where do you find them? There's no like centralized mall to find them. And so we started to add them to our platform in our store directory. What started to happen is the consumer started to see this like a digital mall. I can walk into this digital mall and I can start to browse the door fronts, the storefronts. What do I got here? Oh, I didn't know there was a kid's store like that. And so I think it became a place of exploration. I think that's what really drove it is, hey, I'm in the mall. What else is there? And are you using, I mean, the fact that I bought this cool sweater might mean I want to go buy a cool sneakers or something like that from another from a different type of merchant are using the fact that I purchased this particular SKU to help guide me in that mall? Absolutely. I would say it's one of the areas where we're still working on improving it, like personalizing it even better. Yep. But we are really focused on that right now because the key is you don't want to have you come in and you see the same stores as me because we're different shoppers. We're looking at different things. And so if we can personalize that experience 
to make it really work well for each individual customer, it's going to make that engagement level rise and rise and rise. That's our biggest focus right now. We've got some of that personalization in our app and in our storefront, but we're working to add to it. Now, how do you think of these like mega merchants that are out there? Obviously there's Amazon, there's like these kind of merchant platforms like Shopify or something like, how do you see them evolving in this kind of payments area? Well, I think there's a chance that some of the buy now pay later companies sort of, you know, first of all, sort of create a marketplace like them because right now we're at this merchant marketplace level, you shop at Bass Pro Shops, you might want to shop at the Sportsman's Guide or whatever, you know, so you see another one just like it in our systems. At some point, we're probably going to be pulling in product, pulling it through the merchants to our product directory. That's, that's what's being tested in some ways in buy now pay later now. I've seen it with our competitors. We've talked about it. And if we start to pull product in, and now you can just browse this like a, a massive directory, that starts to look a lot like Amazon. I can shop for certain products here now. So that's one area we're thinking about as well. So there's some companies in the space really focus on the financial services journey, which I would say that's where our primary focus is. But there are also some players in the buy now pay later space focus on the shopping journey. Those are the two paths you can focus on. And I know some are focused a little bit more on the shopping journey, which is pulling more products in focusing on that repeat. So I think we had that direction and maybe there's a little bit of those platforms heading our direction as well. Because I know Shopify has like a shop pay, Amazon has Amazon pay. Yep. They're trying to create their own payment platforms. And this, you know, we talked about earlier with convergence. I think there's some convergence in this payment platform and marketplace concept as well. When you think about Amazon, one of the more successful financial products is giving loans to merchants. So they see the merchants, they see all the data that the merchant is doing, that merchant needs to go buy more inventory, et cetera, or, or they're more of a seasonal merchant or something like that. And Amazon can give them a $50,000 loan or something like that and feel very confident that that merchant. Can you imagine a, a buy now, pay later, like working also with the merchant in that way? We are already. We have a partnership in place where we're offering loans to our merchants. Oh, oh wow. Okay. We're cool. already doing a bit of that. You know, not to the scale of Amazon at this point, but we've added it in because we're seeing that data. You know, we're seeing what they're doing, we're seeing how they're performing, we're seeing their service levels. Are they having a lot of complaints or not? And if these are high performing merchants, we can do the same sort of analysis and offer them loans too. We're not doing it directly because we don't want to take the balance sheet on, but we've got a partner that helps us do it. These buy now pay later do have to raise a lot of money. Because even if you can like somewhat syndicate it, some of it you have to fund through your balance sheet, right? As you grow, you have to bring in a lot more cash as you grow, which is like mm -hmm. somewhat of a, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a, a bug, maybe it's a feature. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. It's a non-ideal feature of the companies as you scale up. You've got to bring capital on as you grow. It definitely is you know, one of the, the dings against the space. Yeah. But what we've done is we've really tried to focus on the MES piece because we don't want to do co-funding. Our view is that, We've got this line of credit. It's got a nice advance rate, around 90%. And if we can bring on MES pieces into that ballgame, then we don't have to use any of our equity as we scale it up. We're getting 100%. And MES pieces meaning you can syndicate that to other folks who can take on some of the benefits of that. Exactly. So we get 100% essentially funding on, on the line of credit. So as we scale up, we don't need capital. As a business builder, I like capital coming in the company, focusing on applying that to our team yep. and our technology so we can build that up instead of towards loans. And we've been able to accomplish that for the last few years. So as we've scaled the company up, we don't co-fund. I mean, we have it built into our model, but we have MES lending available to us. So we've been able to take all the capital coming into our company and focus on building, which I've been really happy with. 
some players in the space, especially if you have more of a long-term product, you tend to, that's more difficult to do. I guess if you're turning it over every every six weeks, it might be a little bit easier to bring the the risk for a MES investor. I don't know how you call them LPs or I don't know what, what are these, but I imagine it's a very, very low risk product, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's there's definitely a dynamic of building a lending company that you have to think about. You know, the, the holy grail at some point is you become a bank yep. at some point way in the future and you take deposits and you don't have to worry about that. That's why I think that's where we're eventually headed, but that's five to 10 years out, that okay. concept of becoming more traditional. I mean, if you look at like Square, you know, they got their banking license, their industrial loan charter yep. coming in. And I think they're starting to think that path, but they're, they're a much older company than we are. So they're further down that pathway. Interesting. Now, somewhere on kind of like just interested in your thoughts about creating businesses and stuff like that. I know when you hire, you make candidates basically take kind of like a wonderlick test. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to do that? Because that's maybe non-traditional. You know what? It's very similar to our product. Taking as much data as you can at the initiation of meeting someone and use that data as part of this matrix of how you look at them and evaluate. And so we use Wonderlic, but it's not the, the be all end all for yeah. us. It's a data point. So we look at that, you know, if you're a younger potential employee, we want to see a transcript. Like, how'd you do in school? You know, where was your GPA? Oh, you, you actually asked for your transcript. Okay. Got it. Absolutely. Okay. Like, how did you do? You know, if you're, if you're still within like five years out of school, how did you do? And especially in the core classes where we're hiring for, did you do a good job there? And then of course we have our interview processes that we do. So there's basically a lot of things that we look at with that potential uh, teammate. And then we look at that and we decide, you know, through that basket. And then are you going back? Okay, we hired this person two years ago and they were fantastic. We hired this other person two years ago. They weren't as good. How are you evaluating those decisions later? Yeah, so here's the thing. Uh, an employment agreement is like a long-term loan. I don't think we have enough data yet. That is the plan. The plan is as we get more and more experience, let's tie it back. Let's look at these attributes of who is highly successful in our company and then apply them, make sure we can iterate and apply or put more focus there. I would say we're not quite there yet. You know, we have a gut instinct that's telling us that these are really important elements because you can kind of just sense it when you're hiring. But we do need to go back and do the feedback loop and see, are these really key indicators for us and how so? But I think there's a lot of steps for us to get there. You know, we're still, as a company, we're still growing. We're still working on getting the right performance review systems in place yeah. you know, to, so we can measure accurately on who's scoring to the top. So there's like things that we have to do to really create the feedback cycle. And again, think of it, it's like a long, it's like a really long-term loan. Yeah. Well, one of the problems is, is like your N is small, right? You probably, most of the people you've hired, you probably hired in the last 18 months or something. Right. And so, and you change your processes over time and, and stuff like that. Now, if there was like a world of DAS listener out there and they started a, a data co-op to gather all the data of like inputs of like what people look like and then, and then how good they did in your company. And you could see that across thousands of companies and they aggregated it. Would that be something you'd want to subscribe to or something? Absolutely. One of the biggest challenges in building a business is the team. Yeah. You know, I think to be successful as a founder, you really got to have a nose or a knack for identifying really awesome teammates. Knock on wood, we've been generally really good at that. And I want to keep on, you know, focusing on talent and bringing talent to our company, retaining talent, rewarding it. Because that's, I think, how you set yourself apart is your team. I, I always say to build a great company, you've got to have a great idea, a great team, and capital. Yep. Team is one I really like to focus on because in the end, 
that's who's delivering and driving new ideas, innovation, execution. And if you can really focus on that, you're going to have some success. Okay. So, I mean, in the, in the money balling for talent, there's people that are obviously going to be good. They have great grades. They scored 1560 on their SAT. They have all these, you know, they were software engineer at Google and Facebook or something. Yeah. And the money ball for talent, is there a particular type of thing that you see on a, a resume or you when, you're, when you guys are looking at something where you're like, okay, I think this person is better than other people will think this person is? It's, that's a really interesting one. I don't think we've solved that one yet. You know, I, I try to think about what- and I don't know if you would tell me if you have or- Yeah, yeah no, you know what? I think what, what I always like to listen for, so I, looked, I like the data points and I really do like grades and wonder, like, I think they're important when I look at, at hiring. But I like to listen for hard work and lack of entitlement. How do you know that in an interview? Hard work and and uh, I mean, obviously, if you worked with someone for six months, you probably know their lack of entitlement and hard work. But how do yeah. you know that in an interview? You know, here, I'll give you an example. When I do the the hiring, I do some like a little bit of awkward processes. Yeah. One of our superstars on our team, I asked him, "This is like four years back now." I said, "Hey, can you meet me for a, a coffee on Saturday morning at seven a.m." No problem. I'll see you there. Yeah. I got there at 645. He was already there. Okay. All right. So it's that type of thing. It's just like yeah. entitlement. I can't make Saturday at seven. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. That's a tough one to make. Yeah. And so I think there's some of that look for signals of going above and beyond in their past you know, roles or in school or in life. Have they got gone above and beyond? Because I think that's an important element. If a person's willing to drive through things and you know, you know, push through really hard times to make things happen, whatever you can do to ask for that, I think is really important. Okay, a couple of macroeconomic questions. So, you know, in the pandemic, on the one hand, people were very concerned about money. On the other hand, there was a lot of like government money, which kind of like made people more willing to spend. How did that affect the BNPL space? Those two kind of like kind of conflicting things that were happening. Yeah, well, I think. People being at home was definitely pushing towards e-com. Yep. It's where we had our bread and butter. Yep. So yep. You're not at the local grocery store or something, right? Exactly. So that element definitely accelerated e-com, which we were along for the ride on that. And then the the stimulus checks definitely spurred spending, which you know accelerated what was happening with e-com. Yep. But if you look at our growth rate, like if, if I charted our volume over the history of the company and I took the years away. Yeah, the months and years. I bet you couldn't even find where COVID occurred. Okay, got it. It was growing and it just kept growing. Yeah, it just kept on growing. I mean, we might have been like, you know, instead of growing 20 or 30% in that month, we grew by 23, 24. So the macro, like extra push, wasn't enough to be noticeable over time. It wasn't like a spike. If you go look at our, our charts, you will see Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Yeah. You will see these like spikes, boop, and they'll go away, but you don't see like a push up or a, you know, a rise over the COVID time period or the early COVID period. It's just basically hidden. Now what, like, you know, you have a really interesting data set, you know, at a SafeGraph, we sell our data to like the Federal Reserve and they use our data to understand the macroeconomic environment of the country. And they may set interest rates or they may set other policy based on our data plus other data sets. I imagine like your data could be really valuable to a regulator or to somebody trying to understand the economy, would you ever consider like packaging it in some sort of way and allowing people to take a look at it? Yeah, I think as long as we 
made sure that there was no consumer data in there. Yeah. Yeah. Just general data, aggregated data. You may have Minnesota and you have data about Illinois and you have data about Florida or something or. Yeah. It's not something we currently do, but I think that would make sense. You know, if there's a chance you can further monetize the data in a way that's completely harmless to the consumer when you do that, you know, why not? Especially given that as a company, our goal is one of our you know primary mandates is to to drive profits. And so I think if we could find a way to do that, where we're not really worried at all about the consumer side of it, the, the data safety, I think we, we would look at it. Okay, cool. Now, says it was listed on the Australian Securities Exchange, right? Your ticker is SZL. Why did you choose that? Totally interesting. It's, it's really because this sector really took off in Australia first. Okay. And so as we were scaling the company. So the, the, the average investor in Australia just appreciates the BNPL sector more than the average investor in the US or something? Absolutely. You nailed it. Okay. And it was basically the only way to get investor funding in Australia, the best way was to become listed. Yeah. It, it's okay to get listed at like a series B stage, actually even a series A stage. You can go get listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. And so for us, it was really an easy decision because I went out there and did a roadshow, met 19, 20 investors, and you could tell they were super excited. Like if you guys floated an IPO, you'd be highly successful. Yeah, Everyone understands that this is a, a hot product because we saw what happened here in Australia and we'd be willing to fund it. And in the United States, there was a lot of like scratching their chin. What is this product? It's so unique. I've never seen anything like it before. Let me take a few months to analyze it. <laughs> you know, and as you're thinking about scaling your company up, you need to move fast, especially when the competition's coming. And so that was the right path for us. Interesting. What are the drawbacks? As I am a, a U.S. entrepreneur, and I'm thinking about some of these things. What, what's the downsides of going on in Australia as opposed to more traditional Nasdaq, NYSE, etc.? Well, I'd say time periods like this. You know, right right now these macroeconomic time periods you know, really show you your true price every day, where in the private sector or private realm, you, you get like a shock absorber, I'd say in these scenarios. A good example of that is I have a friend that was looking into that same path. And when he was looking about going that path and getting listed, his potential valuation dropped significantly in the process, but his private valuation went up over the same time period. What a dilemma. So he's staying private. Yeah. So I think, you know, when you look at it, that's one of the cons I would say. Or what about a con of like Australia versus NASDAQ or something? Oh, you know, I think one con that we actually, I think, live out a bit is the Australian investor can't touch it, feel it, see it with our product because we're not in Australia. And I think there's an element to that where if the customer can actually see your product in action, oh yeah, they have more confidence. So that's like a unique one to us. So I think that's one to consider if your product's not actually live in the market. I think there's a little bit of a ding that you take on. In terms of your valuation, but there's a lot of pluses as well. You know, one of the big pluses I've always seen is that basically our employees value the equity that you hand them over. So I'm sure in building your companies, when you hand over someone, hey, we're going to give you a piece of the pie, and yeah. you hand over shares in the company, then you know people just glaze over. What right. is this? It's not liquid, at least, right? Exactly. There's no ticker, and so when there's actually a price on it, I think that changes the dynamic of attracting talent into your company, which helps. There's also the element of you're always making news because you've got your quarterly reports. So you're always in the news. People know you more. There's yeah. better recognition, better trust because you're a publicly listed company. There's higher levels of compliance. Yeah. And so your, your partners trust you a lot more. You don't ever get questioned like, let's do an interrogation of your company and understand if you've really got everything here. It's already a given. So there, there are a lot of benefits as well. Interesting. Now, you're a multi-time founder, 
what is something that maybe a second time founder knows more than a first time founder? Wow. That's a good question. You know, for me, I think product market fit has become extremely important. I used to be all about, let me find a new idea that no one's thought about and try to launch a product. I think what's fun in business building is the competition. And I think spend less, if you really want to be an entrepreneur, spend less time trying to think about the new thing because almost everything has been invented. Almost everything. It's amazing. Find something that's got product market fit and join in and enter the game because the game's fun. And you'll one of the hardest parts is finding product market fit. If you yeah. can find a new burgeoning space and, and have product market fit already there for you or a good idea that you'll have it, building the business is a lot of fun. And that's why I generally tell younger entrepreneurs or newer entrepreneurs. Interesting. Because one of the questions we ask often is our last question is, you know, what conventional wisdom or advice is generally bad advice? And this would seem like that would be a very good answer to that question. Yeah. Because product market fit is probably like, 90 plus percent of success. If you head down the wrong part, product market fit, you're going to be in a world of pain. I can tell you because at both of my companies I founded, we started down the wrong place <laughs> and we, we pivoted twice and it's not fun. It, it's pain. I've been part of that. I've been part of many pivots as well. Yes, it is tough. Yeah. This is really, really great. I really appreciate your time. Where can people find you on the general interwebs? Well, you know, I'm not an active social media person, I have to say. You know, being a public company, I generally backed away from it. You made an active choice not to do that, or you were always never really that? that. I was never super active. I was probably more active on LinkedIn. I still am most active on LinkedIn. It's interesting. We have so many people here, so many public company CEOs on World of DAS, and I would say the, the vast majority of them, they say LinkedIn and not really any of the other places. Yeah, I'm not as brave as Elon Musk with, <laughs> with tweeting out things every day. I'm afraid of stepping into bear traps. So yeah, probably a good idea not to talk about your stock price on Twitter or something. Yeah. yeah. So I stay away from Twitter. I just use Twitter for browsing and looking up uh, Timberwolves highlights. Okay. So you know, generally LinkedIn to help promote the company, find new prospects, you know, do what I can to help the company. How are your Timberwolves going to do? Actually, they're looking pretty good this year. Oh, all right. All right. They've got Excellent. one of the most efficient starting fives, which people, I think it would surprise people. Their starting five is really successful. And Anthony Edwards is a lot of fun to watch. All right. Awesome. Well, on that note, thank you, Charlie, very much for joining us World Das. This has been really, really fun. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. 